Well, good morning. In case you want to follow along in your Bible, I think the text that we'll be looking at is page 902. So if you're turning there, just by way of introduction, my name is Bujan Mertalui. It's a privilege to be here. I'm an assistant pastor at Redeemer in the city, but really delighted to be here this morning. And earlier I did tell Mark, next time I come, I'm going to text him on Thursday and say, what suit are you planning to wear? And uh, I will bring the other color. It really is a privilege to be here. So on your bulletin or in your Bible, you see that our text this morning is John 16. I want to read the text and then we'll begin. John 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying... What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is the word of the Lord. In a letter to a friend, C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of English at the University of Oxford last century, in a letter to one of his friends, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. It's startling. It's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. Those words of Lewis actually remind me a lot of what the Apostle Paul said. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, when you feel like it, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command. It's an imperative. Paul's telling the church and telling us, Rejoice in the Lord all the time. Working out of that, C.S. Lewis says it's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. But here's the rub. Like you, I'd like to be joyful. I'd like to be as happy as I can. But the reality is, oftentimes, sorrow, pain, heartache comes crashing into our life. Sometimes it's because of things that we've done. We've brought it upon ourselves. Oftentimes it has nothing to do with our own direct actions. It's just a reality of living in this world. Heartache comes crashing down like waves into your ship. Oftentimes sorrow comes and it snuffs out these flickers of joy that we have. 
So here we are as a people reading something like Paul's words to the Philippians or hearing this advice from C.S. Lewis and saying, yes, we want to be happy. We want to rejoice, obviously. But how do we maintain that kind of joy, this deep, almost unconquerable joy in the midst of this broken world where there's pain and heartache everywhere? How do we do that? It must be possible because in a different place, C.S. Lewis, uh, not C.S. Lewis, the Apostle Paul, let's not confuse them, in a different place, the Apostle Paul said, and you may want to jot this down and look it up later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul was describing his life as a minister and he said, I am sorrowful and always rejoicing. I'm sorrowful and always rejoicing. In fact, Jesus himself, you know this, was described in the Old Testament as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, that's not a description that I actually aspire to myself. How would you like to be known, Bishan, as a man of sorrows? And yet that's what Jesus was identified as there in Isaiah 53. But if you turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, you'll also see that Jesus is called not a man of sorrows, but a man who is anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. Paraphrase, he was the happiest guy around. And I go, well, which is it? Is it sorrow or joy? And Paul says, yes, I'm sorrowful and always rejoicing. Jesus says, I'm the man of sorrows and I'm the happiest guy around. And I say, how is that possible? We want joy. We want to be a people that honor God with our happiness. The realities of life come crashing down and there's pain and heartache. And yet Paul and Jesus seem to indicate that sorrow and joy are possible at the same time. So the question that I have for us this morning is, how is that possible? How can we be a people that maintain joy in the midst of sorrow? That's the question. How can we be a people who maintain joy in the midst of sorrow? The answer is in John 16, I think. The answer to that question comes to us, John 16, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. That's the context. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room. And here in John 16, Jesus is declaring something to them that I think is extremely significant. So let's begin. John 16, verse 16, Jesus talking to his friends, as we've just read, and he says, in a little bit of time, you're not going to see me. A little bit later, you will see me. Now, the disciples were confused. What's he talking about? You're going to see me. You're not going to see me. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to be taken away from you. You'll weep. You'll be sad, but the world is going to rejoice. The disciples are very perplexed, but we know, don't we, what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is saying he knows what's coming. In a matter of hours, he would be betrayed. He would be wrongly condemned. He would be crucified and he would literally be buried and taken out of the disciples sight. That's what he's referring to in a little bit of time. You're not going to see me. I'm going to be gone. And Jesus says, when that happens, you're going to be sorrowful. Now, that's 
pretty clear, I think, when you know the story of these disciples, that about three years before this night, they gave everything up to follow Jesus. They left family. They left jobs. They even left reputation. Because Jesus was not just their master, he was also their friend. And they gave everything to follow him. They loved him. And now Jesus is saying, in a matter of hours, I'm going to be gone. The world, they'll rejoice because when he says world, he's referring to the enemies of Christ. They're going to be happy. Finally, we've got this guy who's causing so much trouble. We've got rid of him. The world's going to rejoice. But you, my friends, you will be sorrowful. See, that's the context. But notice what Jesus says. We've read it. But look again at verse 20. And again, a little while and you will see me. And your sorrow will turn into joy. Do you see that there in verse 20? Your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, what's Jesus saying? Practical point for a second. Oftentimes, perhaps like you, when I'm experiencing a great hardship or when I'm going through something that's causing me great pain, I often come to God in prayer and I say something like this. God, please take away this sorrow, this pain, this situation that's causing me great consternation. Please take it away and give me peace. Give me joy. Take away the sorrow and give me joy. I pray that not infrequently. And Jesus says, not audibly, but through this text, No, Bijan, I'm not going to take away your sorrow and give you joy. I'm going to do something one better. I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. I'm going to transform your sorrow into joy. Saying, well, what does that mean? That sounds kind of abstract. Jesus, in verse 21, gives a marvelous illustration about what it means for sorrow to be turned into joy. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Now, we love Jesus, but that's a gross understatement, isn't it? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. That's putting it mildly. I asked my mom about this, and when she was there when I was born, it's totally true. Uh, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Why? Because her hour has come. The pain of birth, right? That's what Jesus is alluding to. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born into the world. This is simple but so significant. What's Jesus saying? When a woman's in the birthing process, she has great pain. Why? Because of the baby. That's in her womb. The source of the pain and sorrow is the baby. But as soon as she's given birth, she forgets about the pain and she has only joy. What's the source of the joy? It's the baby. And what Jesus is saying with this illustration is that the way joy works in the life of his people is similar to the process of giving birth. A woman has great pain, but as soon as the baby's born, she forgets about the pain, 
Because of the baby. What was causing the sorrow? The baby. What causes the great joy? It's the baby. And Jesus is saying that's just an illustration of something much bigger. What? Cross and resurrection. A little while and you won't see me. Because I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm literally going to be out of your sight. But then a little while later you will see me. Because I'm going through death to the other side, to resurrection life. And you will see me again, and then you will rejoice. I'm not taking away your sorrow to give you joy. I'm actually going to turn your sorrow into joy. That's Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. You don't get the joy of having the child without the pain of childbirth. Once I was talking to a junior high student about this, and they said, well, you could adopt. Uh, It's true. It's besides the point. Only junior hires, right? I see some of you. But it's true. But the point that Jesus is making is simply this. The joy that comes after that of having a child is joy that was not disconnected from sorrow, but was actually the result itself of the sorrow. He was turning sorrow into joy. And that's what he's saying to his disciples on this night. You guys will be sorrowful. Your hearts will break. Because I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But that sorrow, the sorrow of Good Friday, the sorrow of crucifixion, is going to produce a resurrection, new life kind of joy. Sorrow will turn into joy. Now, we're going to go on in just a moment, but I want you to see something real briefly. Theologians talk about how the life of Christ, in many ways, is an example of the life of believers. That is to say, we follow in Christ's footsteps, at least in some ways. And I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. The Christian life is, this is your pattern. The Christian life is a pattern of sorrow and joy. A cross to bear and a crown to come. This is the pattern. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, sorrow to joy. This is how it works in the life of believers. This is how it works in my life and in your life. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. Now, we'll come back to verse 22 a little bit later. But that's really the main point of the text. But here's the thing that I want to now consider with you. You're saying, okay, it's basically spring now, so we feel a little bit happier. And this is a really appropriate sermon for early spring. Kind of a happy, God will turn your sorrow into joy. Thank you for coming, Mr. Nice Preacher, and not saying something to make us all feel bad about ourselves as a guest preacher. Really appreciate that. It would be very possible for you, in other words, to hear a sermon like this and to say, yeah, that's what preachers say. Like, that's the cliche. God turns sorrow into joy. But you may be thinking, that's not really how it works in my life. I mean, my life, there's been a lot of pain and there's been a lot of sorrow. And there has been no, I mean, I get the illustration about the baby, but there hasn't been that, you might be saying. 
There's been a lot of child labor and no birth. There's been lots of sorrow and no joy. So what do you say to that, Mr. Preacher? What do you say when your little sorrow to joy sermon doesn't feel like it's working in my life? I say two things. First, what this text is teaching and what the illustration that we're going to look at here in just a moment says. First thing, your story is not over. Your story is not over. Now, here's what I mean. I'll give you an example. Some of you are familiar in the Old Testament with the story of a man named Joseph. Joseph is one of the sons uh, of Israel, that is of Jacob. And if you know his story at all, I'm going to just summarize it real briefly. But here's like this is the, the spiral downward. We, we all want to avoid this kind of path. Here's what happens to Joseph. Joseph is one of 12 siblings and there was some sibling rivalry. And Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Okay, that's bad. Like right there, that's very unpleasant. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. But it doesn't end there. Because while Joseph is a slave, he ends up working in the house of a guy named Potiphar. And apparently Joseph was a good-looking man. Because we know that Potiphar's wife, she was a shady lady, and uh, Potiphar's wife, it says, lays eyes on Joseph. And she invites him to sleep with her. And Joseph refuses. And he says, I can't do that because I'll be sinning against my master. But more importantly, I'll be sinning against God. So Joseph refuses and refuses until one day she just can't take it. Joseph's alone in the house. She goes in. She grabs him to try to make this act happen. And Joseph literally refuses. He runs out the door. So as you know, she makes up a false claim about how Joseph tried to throw himself on her. And Potiphar is like, well, we can't have that. And Joseph is put into prison. Right. So betrayed by brothers and sold into into slavery while a slave, he's living honorably and serving God. And then he's falsely accused and put in prison. Right. So down, down. And then while Joseph's in prison, you know. He meets two friends, a butler and a baker. And one night, the butler and the baker have some dreams. They're troubled by them. They come to Joseph. Joseph interprets them. It's good news for one, bad news for the other. And for the person who has good news, Joseph says, listen, you're going to go back into Pharaoh's court. That is, you're going to go back into the, the, the presence of the president, we can say. The guy who has the power. And when you get there, please remember me. Don't forget about me in the presence of Pharaoh. I shouldn't be here in prison. What happens? The man gets back into Pharaoh's presence, completely forgets about Joseph for another two years. And then one day he remembers and he tells Pharaoh, wait, there's a guy I should have. Oh, man. And Joseph is called out of prison. And as you know, finally in Joseph's life. He's brought into the presence of Pharaoh. He receives a position of great honor. And the story is quite extraordinary. There's a, if you would, silver lining. But here's what I want you to see, my friends. Do you know how much time elapsed 
between the moment Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery till the time where he was brought into Pharaoh's court. You know how much time? If you do the math in the book of Genesis, it's about 20 years. That's a long time. 20 years is a significant amount of time. And you can imagine if Joseph's hearing my sermon, right, while he's in prison. He's going, yeah, sorrow to joy. Mm." I thought that and then I was accused falsely and I went even lower. And yet, what could we have said to Joseph if we could talk to him while he was in Potiphar's house? Or while he was in that prison, forgotten. What could we have said to Joseph? I said, Joe, I know right now all you see are shadows. All you feel is heartache and pain. But your story is not over. Somehow God is going to turn your sorrow into joy. Trust him. And 20 years time from thence, Joseph could say, yeah, I see it. Joseph's story, even in the midst of that bleakness, we could have said to him, your story is not over. And didn't Joseph say, Genesis 50, verse 20, when he finally did meet his brothers again? His brothers were very scared because now Joseph had a position of power. And like, oh man, he's going to exact some vengeance upon us. And what Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Your story's not over. God is turning sorrow into joy. Think about the resurrection of Jesus. Usually death is the period. Usually death is the end of someone's story. And even in Jesus' case, the story wasn't over. Resurrection life came from death. Do you see? Your story is not over. It may feel very bleak. It may feel very dark. But these biblical examples must encourage us that oftentimes our God seeks to work in the 11th hour when all hope feels lost. Now, that's just one. You may say, well, that still doesn't totally satisfy me. That still sounds a little too preacherish. What else you got? The other thing, not only is your story not over, but secondly, you don't know the whole story. You do not know the whole story. For this illustration, I want to remind you of John the Baptist very briefly. John the Baptist, as you know, was called by God to sort of be the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus's ministry. He was the one who was sent ahead to rally people's attention. There's a coming Messiah. So that's what John did. He's there in the wilderness and he's preaching. He's wearing funny clothes and he's got stuff in his mustache. And he's baptizing people there at the River Jordan. And one day Jesus comes. And John looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes to John and John says to Jesus, Jesus, you've got to baptize me. I know I've been out here in the river baptizing people, but now you're here. You've got to baptize me. Jesus is like, no, John, you've got to baptize me. They go back and forth. Jesus wins. So John baptizes Jesus. Best baptism in history. As soon as he does that, the heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And God himself says, this is my beloved son. I mean, that's a good baptism right there. Okay, that's what John was part of that. 
John was in in that water with I mean, that's significant. That's who John the Baptist was. But as you know, as Jesus' ministry sort of gained in popularity, John's ministry sort of started to fade. So one day John was preaching as he was doing. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's doing miracles and John's preaching. And one particular day, John says something to offend somebody in power. So that person's not pleased, puts John in prison. And John's there in prison. He's left there. And one day, while John's in this prison for preaching, carrying on his ministry, one day, doubt starts to creep into John's heart. Doubts about who Jesus is. See, I probably expect that John thought something like, hey, no big deal, I'm in prison. But Jesus is going to come. Jesus will come visit. Jesus will do some kind of miracle and I'll be freed. I'll be liberated because doesn't he know? I'm the forerunner. I was there where this all started. I was there at the beginning. Surely this prison visit for me won't be significant. Won't be long. But one day while in prison with no visit from Jesus, no word, John starts to doubt. And I know that. Because in Matthew chapter 11, we're told that John gets some of his friends and he sends them to Jesus. And John tells his friends, I need you to go and find Jesus and I need you to ask him this. Say, are you the one that should come? Or should I be looking for another? You hear that? Are you the one, Jesus? Or should we be looking for someone else? You know what I think John is saying? If you are the one, then why is this happening to me? If you are the one that should come, then why is my life unfolding the way that it is? So John says to his friends, take that, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? So John's friends make their way to Jesus. And they get there and they say, hey, uh, you remember John the Baptist? He has a question. Remember the guy who baptized you? Yeah, yeah. We, he has a question. He's in prison. I don't know if you know that. He asks, are you the one that should come? Or should we be looking for somebody else? So what does Jesus say? He says, well, go and tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All significant stuff. And you can imagine the disciples of John, they're excited that, great, this is good news. Jesus is the one. And then Jesus says the last thing. And, make sure you tell John, and, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Paraphrase, blessed is the one who doesn't doubt when I don't work the way they want me to. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Blessed is the one who's not caused to doubt or to stumble because of me and my work. John's disciples go back to John. And they said, did you find him? Yeah, we found him. What did he say? Well, he said the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised, all this good stuff. Is that all he said? Well, he did say also. Blessed are those people who don't doubt when things get hard. Blessed are those who aren't offended because of him. That's what Jesus said. Notice, my friends, that's the last thing that John ever heard from Jesus. It was a rebuke. 
It was a kind of punch in the gut. It was a wake-up call. John's in prison and he gets a rebuke. A strong word from Jesus. And then you know what happens to John? He dies. He was beheaded in prison by this person who put him there. Now that's, that's a very unpleasant kind. And when I read that story, I go, man, Jesus, you could have been more gracious. You could have, you could have taken a gentler hand. Because for John, it seems like there was only sorrow and there wasn't joy. But we could say to John, couldn't we? Oh, John, you didn't know the whole story. You didn't know the whole story. There was more going on than you were aware of. Because in Matthew 11, as soon as John's friends left, And made their way back to John. You know what Jesus did? He looked at the crowd that was gathered. And he said to that crowd, You want to know about John the Baptist? You know, I just had some messengers come about it. You want to know about him? Jesus says. Among men born of women. Which is all of them. Right? Every person. Among men born of women. There has never been one greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said to that crowd on that day. Do you hear that? The Son of God is saying there has never been one greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise. It's quite a compliment. And John never heard it. Until glory. See, John didn't even know his whole story. And brothers and sisters, there are things happening that we are not privy to. God's promise to turn sorrow into joy in my life, in your life, does not always mean that he explains himself. It does not mean that we know even our own whole story. That's what's evident in John the Baptist's life. Now, very briefly, as we kind of wrap up, I just want to give you three points of application, and then we'll be done. Okay, the question, how do we maintain joy in the midst of sorrow? The answer, by knowing that all our sorrows are producing joy, are being turned into joy. Three points of application. First, this means something for you personally. On the front of your bulletin, you have one of my most favorite quotes from an old Puritan named Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson wrote, The Christian is one who learns to laugh with tears in his eyes. Do you hear that? The Christian is the one who learns to laugh with tears in his eyes. Is it sorrow or is it joy? The answer is yes. And we as a people maintain joy in the midst of sorrow. We laugh with tears in our eyes because of this reality. Resurrection joy is tethered to Good Friday. It's sorrow and joy because sorrow is producing the joy. That's what that means for you personally. Can you ask God to help you trust Him with that today? I know it may feel like a cliche. It may feel like just stuff we say. But can you ask Him to help you trust Him? To believe that this is true in your life? Second, also very important, 
This is not just something for you personally. This is also something for you, for the people that you love. Here's what I mean. Going through your own pain is difficult. But sometimes, watching people that you love go through great pain and sorrow is even more difficult. We want to help. We want to bring aid and comfort, and we're unable. There's sorrow in our friend's life or in our family member's life, and we want to help, and we feel unable. We feel like we just can't say the right thing or do the right thing, and they're losing hope. Listen, can you believe with them And sometimes, can you even believe for them that God will turn their sorrows into joy? I'm not necessarily saying that you always need to say this to every person, by the way. It's not always the best bedside manners. You show up at the hospital and say, hey, don't worry. God's going to turn your sorrow into joy. I'm not suggesting that, necessarily. But I am saying, deep down, for the people that you love, can you believe for them that God will be turning their sorrows into joy. Lastly, this is also good news for the whole world. There's a lot of sorrow in the world. You know, we've had in our face, in the news, this whole, uh, the disappearance of the flight in Malaysia. And, you know, there's a lot of intrigue in the news. The fact is that's 239 people that we're going from one place to the next and they've disappeared. There's sorrow there. A couple weeks ago, I was getting half and half of the grocery store and there was a man, probably my age, limping around on crutches because he only had one leg. I don't know why he had one leg. No idea why he only has... But we live in a world in which people have one leg. We live in a broken world. We live in a world in which nations fight and bodies break. Tsunamis crash on people's houses and mud slides, mud slides, and people die. I mean, we live in a broken world. And what this text means, what the resurrection means, is that one day joy is going to overwhelm all sorrow. One day life will swallow up death for the whole world. That's why in Psalm 96, the text says, when the Lord comes, the trees of the fields are going to sing for joy. Do you hear that? When the Lord comes, the trees are going to sing. Because everything is going to be put to right. That's what this means. So, my friends, in conclusion, trust that God is turning your sorrows into joy. How can I trust that? Because Good Friday turned into Easter Sunday. Because the cross turned into resurrection. And when you feel like all hope is lost, remember, your story's not over. You don't know the whole story. It's resurrection joy that we're talking about. And if you notice in closing verse 22, Jesus says that kind of joy, the kind of joy that's tethered to the resurrection, nobody can touch that joy. It's safe. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the chance to study together this morning these great truths. For this precious group of people, I pray that you would help us to know that you are a God who turns our sorrows into joy. Encourage us with this word, we pray, especially now as we come to your table. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.